Hello and welcome to a special episode of BakaCast. Uh, joining me for this episode is Ben. Hi there. And no one else, because we're going to be talking about Kizumonogatari. Uh, to be specific, uh, parts 2 and 3, and then briefly about the how it works as a whole. Uh, like all, how all three parts kind of gel together. Uh, because I mostly went over the first part with Ben uh back when it came out but yeah so i guess let's start with part two um, right so yeah part two uh mostly covers uh mostly covers araragi's battles with the uh the three vampire hunters uh yeah guillotine Dram- dramaturgy <laughs> well, and uh episode correct well, well the first one is dramaturgy who's the uh the like the sort of vampire who hunts other vampires. Right. Oh, right. For some reason, I thought he was Guillotine Cutter, because that would make sense, because he has blades for hands. But... No, uh, no, Guillotine Cutter is actually a human. Yeah, he's he's the priest. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so Dramaturgy has, uh, can shapeshift his hands into blades, and also is a half-vampire. I believe. No, he's a. Full... Oh wait, he's he's the full one. Okay. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Episode episode was the half vampire. Episode is the half vampire. Yeah. Who can turn into mist, and yeah. uh, he has like a and like he has a. It's sort of interesting, like the way that the three vampire hunters are compared. Yeah. Because because each of them sort of rep each of them have like like different elements like. Like uh, so, like dramaturgy's a full vampire. Episode is a half vampire, and uh, guillotine cutters a, is a human, and they and they all three of them have different motivations for hunting vampires. Yeah, with uh, with dramaturgy being the most pragmatic and like or and or mercenary of the three, uh, as we see, because like. Once Aragi figures out how to defeat him, which is by like throwing baseballs at his head really fast, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, he's like, "Okay, actually, I don't. I like it's not worth it to me to do this and probably die. So, no, screw it. Here, just have. I'll just give you her limbs. I don't care. Um, I I think what's interesting about this is that like aside from the. F- Aside from the fight scene just looking really cool, and honestly, like, both of the full fight scenes that we get in uh, Episode 2, Part 2, uh, are all really cool. But um, what happens afterwards with Aragi and Hanekawa, uh, I both hate it and love it. Um, because Hanekawa sees him fighting the vampire and she kind of confronts him to know what the heck's going on. Aragi tries to be his aloof self and be like, no, you should stay away from me. It's dangerous. And kind of tries to push her away by being a jerk and telling her, like, if you want to know, if you actually want to know, I'll tell you, but you have to show me your panties first. Which is like the classic Aragi joke that normally I hate. Um, and here is sort of the conflict at the core of how I was watching these movies is that, uh, in, 
including including this scene, there's a lot of stuff that I hate, but whose purpose I love that I just hate the presentation of. So, for example, the the ultimate result of this scene is that, you know, Hanakawa does it. She steals herself and like lifts up her skirt. And I hate the presentation of this because it's done super dramatically. I think, uh, I think the Hallelujah chorus is in the background, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Or something like that. Uh, and that's really, that's really bad. But then the part I liked about the scene, actually, which I was not expecting, um, was when Aragi just used his vampire speed to rush up to her and stop her and then just say, basically, I'm sorry, I didn't actually mean to make you do that. Uh, and it's just, I love the character development they're doing with Aragi and Hanekawa in these movies. It's some of the best character development than, that either of them have ever had throughout the whole series but man some of the some of the elements some of the execution of those scenes is just very exploitative uh yeah it's sort of right well the thing about that is that like with like is that What's interesting about it is the movie's attitude towards Aragi's actions, in that it seems the attitude of the movie is that Aragi is being a douche about this, and he is oh, yeah. totally in the wrong. Um, Absolutely. But at the same time, the movie itself is also indulging in... Uh, like ogling Hanekawa. So there is absolutely a way you can frame that scene and keep the events exactly the same without making me feel bad for watching this in a theater. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah, all those bits, like, yeah, all those bits where, yeah, where, like, our argument basically keeps sort of, you know, is basically sort of kind of trying to put the moves on Hanakawa always made me feel really uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, and and the th and the problem with that is that it's not even just that he's trying to put the moves on her, but the way that Hanakawa is framed by the film itself. Um, and we'll we'll sort of get into this in part three as well because there's uh, one that I think is even an even a better example uh, with even better character development, um, but also like even even worse framing in part three. Oh yeah, um, and you yeah you know immediately what I'm talking about. Uh, but yeah, so that that's just kind of like the dichotomy of these movies is that it's a lot of actually really fantastic storytelling wrapped up in this kind of like uh, gross presentation at times that very much plays into the idea of anime being for like like gross horny males. <laughs> Uh, and it's really sad because there's a lot more going on for Monogatari, uh, and like, it doesn't really need all that stuff. Um, but kind of moving on from that, I guess, uh, I, I really like Hanakawa's role in this film as someone who does not let up on Araragi and does not accept his BS. 
Yeah, and 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 she actually, uh, she actually, and she helps him out, uh, and she even provides the uh, the uh, like the crucial the solution in his fight with uh, episode. Yeah, where like you know where she figures out figures out the trick behind his powers, so that Aragi can beat him. Yeah, and also like she even gets some own moments to be horny as well, which. I, I appreciate because Aragi gets to be horny a lot, um, and I I really like the scene where uh, Hanakawa like bought, buys new clothes for Aragi, and she's like yeah yeah like uh, try them on right now, and Aragi like takes off his shirt and she's kind of just staring at him, <laughs> uh, and I appreciated that. Um, because it lets Hanekawa um, indulge in that, and sort of like one of the themes, like one of the running themes throughout the, these movies is that it's all at the at its core, it's about hunger, um, whether that be literal or a metaphor. Uh, all three of the major characters, um, Aragi, Hanekawa, and Kishat, are all hungry for something. Um, and the moments when it lets, uh, like, its cast indulge in that and, like, uh, further that theme, I really appreciate those moments, especially when they're, you know, subtly done. Um, and that was a particularly good moment for uh, Hanakawa as well. And a nice moment of vulnerability, uh, and a good moment of vulnerability for Araragi. Yeah. Uh, and what I also like, you know, about these movies is they, they, they chart the, the process of Hanakawa falling in love with Aragi. And, because, right, because the whole, because, you know, because what comes up in, uh, you know, in, uh, Let's see in uh you know her her later arcs you know uh, Tsubasa Cat and uh, Tsubasa Family and T- Tsubasa Tiger. You know is you know is that she is you know already you know at, in those arcs you know she's already in love and it's kind of driving her crazy. Yeah, I I really like how much Kizumono. I almost. I almost wish we had gotten Kizumono first because it adds so much important context to Hanakawa's character. Um, and even like the, the romance in Kizumonogatari, like it's, I don't think it's framed as entirely a good thing. And um, like when Aragi states multiple times that, you know, he's surprised by Hanakawa's way of thinking and Hanakawa says, like I told you that I was strange or something like that. Uh, like she's being absolutely accurate. I don't think Hanekawa's uh, devotion towards Araragi is supposed to be portrayed as an entirely good thing uh, because it does stem from uh, and and we get and we get uh, uh, we get that elaborated upon in her later arcs that focus on her in the TV series itself. But ultimately, her devotion towards him is partly due to her own 
lack of faith in herself. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that the show portrays sort of the, the romance between them as both like, uh, as both like, um, you know, good and helpful for both of them, but also as potentially dangerous. Uh, I, I think it has a more, a nuanced view of their relationship. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I also, uh, really like Kiss Shot in, uh, part, uh, well, I like Kiss Shot in all these movies, but, uh, she's especially, she's at her most kind of comedic in part two, uh, where she just kind of observes on the sidelines for most of the part, uh, for most of the time, um, or is sleeping, (laughs) Right. Well, yeah, because she's, because uh, she doesn't, because in, in part two, she doesn't have her limbs back. Or... Yeah, she's still recovering. But then. But it, but her, but it lets her sort of like comment on the things happening around her and uh, be kind of snarky toward Araragi. Yes. Which is uh, when I think uh, Kishot is always at her best is when she's snarking on Araragi. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's see here. The real cool thing about part two and like, so this kind of happened like this. So eventually like it's, it's time for him to face, uh, it's, uh, guillotine cutter. I believe uh, is the final one is the priest and Kishot makes the point like, Hey, just, just because he's, he's human. Don't underestimate him. Because he's he's a priest, he's a true believer. Um, like his sort of power is fanaticism, um, and he's not to be underestimated. And there's this this kind of like weird, but also but also interesting scene between Araragi and Hanakawa, like in a wheat field, where Araragi's like, "Look, I know you've done a lot for me, and I appreciate that, but like." Uh, you really should go and stay safe now because, like, this fight's almost over and, you know, you've nearly got murdered during the last one. So, you know, for my sake, can you just, like, uh, stay out of this one? And she's like, okay, yeah, fine. But also, here are my panties. <laughs> it's like, okay. Um, I, I, I wasn't sure how to feel about that one. I, I think it was, it was handled more tastefully than I thought it would be by the show. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I still have mixed, mixed feelings about that particular scene. Uh, but I appreciate it as a, I think ultimately I come down on the side of it's one of the better, uh, sort of, uh, scenes that go lewd in the film simply because it's Hanekawa initiating it. Um, whereas usually it's, uh, Almost, almost for the rest of the movie, it's uh, Aragi kind of imposing himself on Hanakawa. Like this is this is one where Hanakawa gets to be the one with agency in doing something uh, uh, kind of lewd and horny. Um, so I guess I it it's so yeah. I'd probably say it's one of the better ones um, in that regard. Pro- probably the best handled one. Yeah. But yeah, let's let's talk about uh, guillotine cutter because yeah. something really interesting happens with that uh, fight scene 
because it's not really done traditionally. Like, Hanakawa gets captured, and then the animation goes wild. Right, because then, yeah, because then, like, Aragi, like, unleashes, like, this, this, like, crazy transformation, which just overwhelms Guillotine Cutter. And it, it, and the whole thing resolves very quickly. Yeah, because this whole time, uh, Araragi's clinging to this idea that, you know, once he's done with this, he'll, he'll get to be human again, um... But, like, once Hanagawa gets captured, he's like, well, what use is being human uh, if, like, I sacrifice the person closest to me in order to, like, uh, preserve my humanity? So he just goes full out, and the animation style, I won't say completely changes, but it gets way more stylized and um, sort of otherworldly. Especially with the scene where he's using, like, this freakish vampire speed to run across the city and get to guillotine cutter where like he's a he essentially to the, to the people outside looks like a lightning bolt traveling across these skyscrapers and just blowing cars out of his way and shattering windows. Uh, it's an extremely impressive scene. Oh, what got me was the, the part when he actually gets to guillotine cutter and like his arms turn into vines yeah, they're almost like these dark, uh, like, tree limbs that just sprout out of him and uh, envelop Guillotine Cutter. Uh, it's really wild. <laughs> and especially since, for the most part, the vampires have shown pretty normal vampire abilities. <laughs> um... And, like, the, a lot of the characters, um, both both Oshino and Kishot have said that, oh, you know, you, you may be uh, just like a born-yesterday vampire, but you're one of Kishot's kin, so you are still incredibly powerful, uh, even with what little uh, power, you know, you've been given. And for the most part, we've seen him just do kind of normal superhuman stuff and have super regeneration. But this is the scene where we like realize what it means to be a kin of Kishot, the one of the most powerful vampires in existence, and that it, like, the powers he has are on another realm of existence from everybody else's, and it, and looks just completely alien to everything we've seen so far. It's really effective. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Right. But that all... But, you know, but but of course, the thing about, you know, the experience of, uh, like, okay, you're seeing, like, him deal, you know, you know, sort of mastering his vampire powers and dealing with these vampire hunters. Uh, but of course, in the back, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, okay... Like, yeah, okay, what happens once uh, Shinobu's got her limbs back? Like, then, like, <laughs> then things are going to get really crazy. And that leads us into part three. Yeah, because uh, part two pretty much ends on him, uh, on that scene with him sprouting the tree, tree limb arms. Uh, and, yeah, like... 
part three just goes in after the guillotine cutter fight, um, which really wasn't a fight at all. Uh, and it just kind of assumes, you know, like, yeah, guillotine cutter did not make it out of there. Um, and this one is interesting because there's like one fight scene and a lot of Aragi kind of like coming to terms like this one goes very heavily on Aragi's own motivations and his flaws and sort of you know what led him to this place um it's it's very much a dissection of his own motivations and it's does that really well i think um especially like there's this really great scene where uh well i guess it's not it's not one scene but the sequence the sequence of uh, scenes where aragi is laughing with um kiss shot now uh at almost full power uh, because it turns out Oshino kept her heart um, so she's not quite at full power but uh, fully re- having her limbs fully restored uh, she's kind of like connecting with him on the roof of the old uh, school and talking about how her first uh, the first kin she made you know, committed suicide because he got bored of existence, which uh, is knowing what we already know from uh, Shinobu time arc. Yeah. Uh, and Shinobu male. Yeah, but more specifically, Shinobu time is when where it reveals like pres- like the full reason why he committed suicide. It's it, it's interesting to ask here because like is does Shinobu does Kishot just not remember because she does say that her memory is kind of fuzzy because of her the way she got depowered or is she just straight up lying uh I am tempted to go with she's straight up lying because of what she's about to try and get Aragi to do later on but we'll I guess get to that later but yeah so they have a bonding moment and it's this really like fun and uplifting sequence of scenes where they're kind of like enjoying his last night as a vampire together and running around laughing. And he goes out to bring her a snack, which he thinks means like soda and stuff from like the convenience store. And he comes back to see her just going to town on a human body. Yeah, yeah, I mean, who turns out to be guillotine cutter. Yeah. And it's... It's really... I really like how she is filmed um, eating guillotine cutter. uh, And just, like, kind of looks up at him very nonchalantly. Um with kind of like a streak of blood on her mouth because it really drives home the fact that that uh, Aragi was not expecting to see this and it goes very much against how we've seen Kiss Shot previously 
which also ties into uh, Aragi's motivations uh, at the end. Um, but yeah, I really liked that scene and Aragi's reaction to it, which is to go into the gymnasium and to just freak out and realize like, oh yeah, I've been trying to ignore it this whole time, but you know, vampires feed on humans and I have just saved a vampire's life. I'm kind of the villain here. If you stop to think about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. Cause the scene where, yeah, where the scene where, yeah, she, you know, the, yeah, the scene where he, you know, he finds her eating guillotine cutters horrifying yeah it for for a this this uh series of movies has a lot of blood and gore in it but 99 percent of the time it's kind of like very anime exaggerated oh it's Um, over the top yeah so it's, it's almost i wouldn't say comical but it's not really like grotesque it's just kind of like very it's distancing in that way because it's so over the top whereas guillotine cutter it's it's not that at all really um it is is very deliberately more subdued than other uh than the rest of the gore in the movie series right because what because what that comes down to is it's because it's from Aragi's perspective, when he sees her eating guillotine cutter, he finally realizes the stakes of yeah. what he's doing. And he he then realizes that, you know, she even says like, oh wait, I thought you were going to bring that, what happened to my snack, that girl with the glasses. Uh, and that's when he finally realizes that she was talking. She actually wanted him to bring Hanakawa with him so they could eat her together. Uh, and that's what really pushes him over the edge. And he invites Hanakawa over to try and talk through his feelings and sort of what he should do. Um, and Hanakawa reminds him, like, you know. It, it it's horrifying that you know she eats humans yeah and as humans you know we want to preserve our uh, our lives but also she's not really evil any more than a human being is for eating a cow right uh and sort of the the point where Hanakawa where where like Hanakawa's talk with him kind of culminates in um Aragi saying oh you know like if I if I keep being a vampire then you know I might eat you as well because I feel these hunger pangs and she's like well then eat me then uh, it, like it completely serious, and that's sort of when the show is most blatantly at like, yeah, Hanakawa is nice and all, but also you know there's there's something more there's some like her romance with Agaragi is 
not as pure as it looks, and there is probably something dark going on beneath the surface because a normal person would not be okay with someone eating them just because, you know, they met, like, a few days ago. Uh, and, like, Araragi even says that himself, and it's one of the few times in the series where Araragi makes a very salient point. Uh, well, yeah, of course, well... Yeah, they'd only they'd only like met a few days before, but but uh, for a long time they'd been aware of and interested in each other, as was made clear in part one. Yeah, yeah, but at the same time, like it's still not normal to be okay with yeah. your loved one eating you. That uh, is true, and the fact that she is very sincerely says she'd be okay with that indicates that there is something else going on with Hanakawa, which we don't really find out fully in this movie, but we do. It's mostly foreshadowing for her focus arcs in the TV series. Um, but I did appreciate um, sort of that hint of something going on beneath the surface. Uh, and I guess now we come to the part I was mentioning before when I first talked about sort of the dichotomy in this film series and that we have this scene where Araragi asks as like a final request to touch her breasts and it's 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 executed as badly as you would think it would be um but at the same time there's honestly there's honestly some really great characterization for Araragi and Hanekawa here, um, because once it comes down to it, Araragi is a coward and he can't commit. Uh, and to some extent, Hanekawa actually wants him to commit, uh, because at, you know, then this and this becomes more obvious later in the TV series where you know we learn that Hanekawa sort of suppresses her own uh, sexual expression because she is told that is not what a proper woman does. Uh, it's not how a proper woman behaves. Uh, and so she kind of relies on... She's still under that mindset that as a you know pure girl, she shouldn't be expressing these desires. So she relies on Araragi asking her first and taking the initiative. Uh, and so when he does ask her, like, she is absolutely willing to do it, uh, and even, like, take it farther than Araragi necessarily means to, but Araragi himself is, like, a complete coward and chickens out, and actually, like, doesn't have him, have it in him to go through with any of the things he talks about, um, which, it ticks Hanekawa off. As it rightfully should. Yeah. Because here she is wanting some sexual intimacy with Araragi and thinking he's going to reciprocate, and then he doesn't because he's scared. And he doesn't trust. And I think the thing that hurts the most, especially during the scene where he's asking, like, okay, well, theoretically, like, if this were to go to court, can you say this thing for me? And I'm not going to repeat it here because it's it's just more excuse for them to go into kind of this uh, very fan servicey scene. But 
Um, yeah, it goes on for a while, and it gets really, yeah, it gets really uncomfortable. It super does. It and makes me kind of glad I didn't see it in the theater, because man, that would be super uncomfortable to see in public. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he. What probably hurts Hanakawa most is that he does not trust her to let him make mistakes with her or like be vulnerable with her. Uh, like he he is more than he is more than willing to have Hanakawa embarrass herself, but he is terrified of embarrassing his himself. Uh, and that pro- and that irritates Hanakawa, I think, more than anything, and is at the root of his cowardice. Uh, and it's like again, it is a scene where you could ch- change very little about the core of what is happening between the two of them, uh, and just change how exploitative it is, and you would have the exact same. You'd have the exact same like uh, character development and uh, like revelations, but without any of the stuff that makes you like ashamed to recommend it to other people (laughs) um because it it honestly i do think it is a very important like scene to have but it just needs to be you know executed on in a different way Uh, i remember like way back when i was like i was explaining the monogatari series to someone on irc oh god yeah and 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 so what I said was that the series was both arty and pervy. Yeah, it's uh, I've I've described it to people before as simultaneously one of the most and also least feminist feminist anime I've ever seen. Uh, because there's a lot in it that is actually like very like feminist, but also the presentation of the women is also like pretty sexist at times. So yeah, there's this like weird, uh, there's this weird push and pull that's going on in the series, uh, and these well, movies as well. Well, yeah, well, yeah, because what it gets, because what it does is, you know, uh, like yeah, it has like these like great female characters with like development and agency and like great writing, great character writing, uh, but. At the same time, it, it like both indulges and deconstructs the male gaze. Yeah, yeah, because a lot of times, um, like kind of the whole point of both these movies and also the series of Monogatari is that Araragi is not really like a awesome dude. He's a big screw up, um, and most of the women in the show are have their act together far better than he does and are far more capable than he is. Um, and he often, he more than, he usually mostly serves as a catalyst for helping change occur. Um, and the series has many times where it shows that Aragi is a coward and a dumbass, um, and that you should not really want to be like him. Um, like, except for later on in the series where Aragi has kind of finally grown up and resolved a lot of his issues. Um, but you know, that's at the end of the series after many, many arcs of him being a screw up. Uh, but at the same time, it also like indulges in Aragi's most 
like base instincts uh and even while it says oh these are these are dumb and bad don't be like him it also says but okay like this is pretty great isn't it right <laughs> like you can indulge consequence free because you're the audience uh yeah it's it makes me wonder how much of that is in the books and how much of it is just shaft being shaft <clears throat> yeah right but yeah and Anyway, um, he eventually does resolve to fight Kishot, uh, and that fight scene is wild. Um, I kind of don't want to get too in-depth on it, because there's a lot going on, and describing a fight scene, I feel, would be boring. Uh, but they make really clever use of the fact that vampires are able to regenerate very, very quickly, and also they do a good job of showing that as Aragi takes more damage, he's taking more time to regenerate. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think the real core of... The real core of the movie is what happens after he has defeated Kishot. Yeah. And, and like, and his, uh, his decision-making process yeah because the interesting thing is that uh hanekawa actually figures it out that um kishot has been holding back because she wants aragi to kill her uh and that was kind of her goal the whole time because ultimately both kishot and Aragi share the same weakness. They are both cowards. Um, Aragi, in that uh, he uh, Kishot calls Aragi out on his cowardice, and that um, he was perfectly willing to uh, help Kishot when she was like in her child forms and seemed weak and in need of help um, because it he felt like he had power over her in that way. Uh, whereas when she's in an, in her adult form, that's when Aragi realizes like, oh, okay, she's powerful now. She doesn't actually need my help or she's not dependent on me anymore and is therefore a threat. Um, and like, if he, if he wasn't a coward, he would have realized what she was from the very beginning and just killed her you know, when she was a kid, but he couldn't do it because he was a coward. Um, and then Aragi calls, well, I think it's either her Aragi or, no, it's Hanakawa specifically that calls her out on being a coward because she'd want to die. But unlike uh, her first lover, who she turned into a vampire, she didn't have the courage to do it herself. Because she could very easily just commit suicide by standing in the sun like he did. But she hasn't. Um, and, like, the this final resolution is essentially uh, two people who don't want to make a decision being forced to make a decision. <laughs> yeah, and... Right, and so it comes to be about, uh, yeah, and so, right, and so the resolution is about taking responsibility 
Yeah. Because Oshino comes in and says, like, look, there is no way for everybody to be happy, but there is a way for you all to be, like, to share the unhappiness. And that is by uh, Araragi basically almost killing Kishot um, and turning her into a pseudo-human that at the same time turns Araragi into, excuse me, into a pseudo-vampire. Um, but Oshino also, like, mentions that, you know, he's, like, he'd basically be turning the tables on Kishot because Kishot turned Araragi essentially into a pet. And now, in return, Araragi is not only um, ignoring Kishot's wishes to be killed, but also turning her into his pet, which once again, like, leaves him with the power dynamic that Kishot accused him of taking advantage of uh, during parts one and two. Uh, And so ultimately, it's an ending that is both, like, technically a good ending because everybody lives, but also leaves you feeling like something wrong has happened here. And, like, we know from the show that ultimately it ends up working out and Kishot's resentment of what Aragi did to her fades as she begins to appreciate um, the companionship that Aragi and Aragi's friends can give her. But, yeah, it's, it is a ending that is very much, without the context of the rest of the show is very much a sort of dark uh, ending. Well, and, yeah, and and what's interesting about it is that, you know, Araragi himself, in his internal monologue, points out that he is profoundly unsatisfied with what happened. Yeah. Uh, it's... I was honestly really impressed with Kizumonogatari. Um, I th- like if it weren't for the sort of gross uh, exploitation of Hanaikawa in many places, I would easily say it's my favorite Monogatari story. Um, just because of how rich the character development of uh, everyone in this movie is as well as how beautiful the whole thing is constructed. Um, You know, Shaft is known for sort of its kind of dreamlike presentation of the Monogatari world. Uh, But I think in Kizu Monogatari especially, it's used to um, very good effect. Uh, And there are many times where it overlaps uh, chronologies like splicing in scenes from the future that run parallel to what we're seeing in the present that work exceptionally well. It is a wonderfully constructed movie with some very uncomfortable scenes. Yeah, I think, yeah, in terms of the presentation, there are a couple points where the pacing could have been tightened up a bit. Um, yeah, I think mostly in the first episode. First uh, first movie, I'd say. Yes. Yeah, a, a lot of the scenes, I think, between 
Hanekawa and um, Aragi in the first movie run too long in the way that uh, conversations in Monogatari series can spiral into kind of useless tangents fairly often. Um, but I'd say that part three is um, a honestly pretty, even though it's longer than the other two movies, uh, it also is, I think, the most concise of the the three movies. Yeah. Well, they pack a lot into it. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. So what got me about you know, you know about Aragi's uh, decision process is that what is uh, the way like the way I feel about it in light of uh, like the events of Owari Monogatari, specifically the Sodachi arc. Uh, in that, what it shows is, like, you're thinking, like, why, like, why didn't, like, you know, Aragi just, like, finish off Kiss Shot as she wanted to be finished off? And, you know, and, and it's sort of, you know, and, like, and the, so, like, the Sadachi arc sort of showed, like, you know, sort of the roots of, you know, his thought process there, in a way. Yeah. It gave, it gave um, context to that, because, right, you know, because he comes from, you know, he, he's the son of a, he's the son of a police officer who, who like, has, you know, even though, yeah, he's cowardly in many ways, but he has a commitment to justice. And... You know, and so I guess at, at 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 heart he felt that you know actually, you know, killing off Kishot would have been unjust. Yeah, because again, like as, because ultimately he does come to Hanakawa's way of thinking in that, like Kishot isn't doing it, isn't like killing humans out of malice. She's doing it because that's how she survives, um, and killing someone because they are surviving would be unjust. It's it's not fair to judge a vampire by the standards of humans. Um which is yeah, which is why he has such conflict in ultimately finishing her off. And also I think because um during his talks with her he kind of realized that, you know, she still has, you know, sparks of humanity within her and that, you know, she, like, she could still live a happy existence if only maybe she were given enough time, if she were given another chance. Yeah. And ultimately, like, he turns out to be correct. But at the time, it doesn't feel like it. Yeah. So yeah, so that's the thing. There's a lot to these movies. There. Uh... Yeah, yeah, there are. It also made me like really, really wish that we got more adult kiss shot in the show, um, because her interactions, the way sh- the way an adult kiss shot interacts with Araragi is very different from how the child kiss shot interacts with him. 
Uh, and I wish we had gotten more of that in the show. Because it's a really good relationship, um, and I will continue to promote my own headcanon of Araragi and Kishot and... Ah, uh, oh God. What? Uh, the main... The main girl, Sandra Gahara, being in a polyamorous relationship together, because as we all know, Sandra Gahara is bisexual. Um, which, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's canon. I seem to remember that being revealed as canon during the first uh, um, Sen, uh, Sengoku arc. Uh, welcome, no, not Sengoku. Um, yeah, welcome to the basketball player. Uh, the uh. Kanbaru. Kanbaru, yeah. The uh, well well actually, yeah, let's see. And then there were the there was that bit where uh let's see, that bit where uh let's see, Senja Gahara got it on with Hanakawa in uh Tsubasa Tiger. Yeah, which like that was another instance of you know, I really appreciate the character development they're going for here. I just wish it wasn't so like fan servicey. Um, because I do like the idea of, because like Sandra Gahara's goal there um, is to show that like, look, Hanekawa, you don't need Araragi to validate your existence. Um, you need to love yourself. Also, come join me in this shower. I am like, and like, be happy with your body. Um like, it was very, like, what Shenjo Gahara was trying to do there was to, uh, like, give Hanekawa a space where she could sort of be sexual with her body and, like, uh, appreciate what her body is without relying on Araragi to validate her, it, her worth and her sexuality for her uh which ultimately is like the the point of hanekawa's arc in that particular chapter is going like i don't need araragi <laughs> um but yeah like that yeah that's another scene where i really liked what they were doing with it in, in from a character standpoint but also i was like man you're being really uh fan servicey about it <laughs> yes <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, I really love the characters in this show. Um, and I'm actually kind of going to be sad when, um, we don't get more of it. Um, but I, like, he is making more books, like, filling in more backstory. Um, specifically, I think one of the most recent ones he's done, uh, was filling in some more of, like, uh, Kishot's backstory from before she became a vampire. But yeah, I despite all of its many many faults <laughs> and how hard it is to actually recommend to people uh i very much love this series and kizumonogashi i think is a a shiny example of what the monogashi series can be at its best and also at its worst mm -hmm. yeah uh so overall i will give kizumonogashi a four yeah, I, I will agree with that rating, um, because as much as I adore these movies, you know, I can't ignore um, all the really, like, awkward stuff they do with Hanakawa in the movies, so 
Uh, it should say a lot about the quality of the rest of it that despite the gross, some of the grossness surrounding Hanakawa, I'm still giving it a four. <laughs> because it, get, it, gets pretty, it gets pretty lewd, even by Monogatari standards. But anyway, uh, my dogs are barking, so that probably means it's time to wrap this thing up. Um, but thank you, Ben, uh, for joining me with this uh, so we can uh, give the people the Kizu Monogatari review they've been waiting for, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> All right. See you later. Okay. Thank you.